You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. topic I'm really looking forward to talking to there. Uh, it's, it's a combination of a couple of topics, both of which interest me. Uh, one is the Italian culture in, uh, in Louisiana, and the other is the food culture. Uh, Justin Nystrom is a professor at Loyola University. Uh, he's the uh, um, director of the Center for the Study of New Orleans, which is a, a fascinating thing to do. He's written a lot about New Orleans and New Orleans, uh, New Orleans culture. He said uh, a couple of, of books. Uh, one was about the, uh, the Civil War in New Orleans after the Civil War, race politics and the new birth of freedom. That in itself is a topic I'd like to talk about um, someday and someday soon. And in 2008, uh, with the University of Georgia uh, Press, he published a book called Creole Italians, Sicilian Immigrants and the Shaping of New Orleans Food Culture. And uh, I think that's really just a really interesting topic. Justin, thank you very much for joining us. Let's begin. There's always been, I guess, along with this New Orleans, there's always been an Italian or a Sicilian, they, I guess, drifted in on a ship or something. But, but the peak period of Italian migration would have been after the Civil War, like 1880s to 1890s, is that correct? Yeah, well, there's there's an earlier migration, which is is very significant, that comes really starting in the 1830s with the citrus trade. So, you, you, you know, really by the time you get to the Civil War, um, Sicilians are dominating the produce trade on, on the levy. Um, but what they do is, is when these fruit traders modernize their fleets in the late 1870s to expand into tropical fruit, so they, they, they buy steamships, it becomes practical to bring people from Sicily because it's a long voyage. And so, that's when you start to see large numbers of Sicilians come to New Orleans on the citrus fleet, um, you know, a thousand at a time. Well, wasn't it also true that after the Civil War, there was really a loss of labor out in the fields and that the, and that the, the, the farm interests in Louisiana had to advertise for workers to come to Louisiana and work? And agriculture people in Sicily would have been used to the Louisiana, Louisiana climate. Yeah, definitely so. So what you have is a, a cooperative effort. You know, the, the sugar planters, it wasn't necessarily a lack of labor. It was a chance that uh, there was labor unionism amongst the, um, you know, recently freed uh, workers. And the thought was, well, we can import European labor that we're able to better control. Um, and they work with these, these um, fruit merchants in the French Quarter. And they develop what's called the Patrone system where they're patron. And, and so these, these fruit merchants in cooperation with, you know, planters, not just in Louisiana, but all over, you know, Arkansas, Delta, um, you know, Mississippi, even East Texas, they actually go and actively recruit in these little towns in Sicily uh, to come to America. And it's a very, um, it's a bad time in Sicily because of the, 
re the unification of Italy, um, sort of the turmoil that had started in the North in the earlier, earlier in the 19th century in the 1840s and 1850s, kind of works its way down the peninsula. And by the 1870s, Sicily is in the midst of a depression, uh, a lot of unrest, um, and then a drought. And so it's, it's very appealing to get on one of these boats and agree to a, a labor contract to get you in this new place. They may not yearn to cut cane, but they do yearn to get out of Sicily. Was the uh, inclination similar to what you see even today with a lot of immigrant situations where you have people from a, a deprived country and, they, and the males come to work, in, to work in factories or in the fields with the intent of either going back to the old country or at least sending money back home? Yeah, certainly. And, and what, what I think people don't realize is, in essence, you had a lot of single men commuting, if you will, seasonally, because the, the steamship revolution, and of course, the port of New Orleans is a very active port, very, um, it's, it's so efficient to, to ship once steamships arrive. So it takes 29 days to get between Palermo and New Orleans. Uh, on a steam vessel, pretty much on the nose. And, and so you would have labor sail to New Orleans earlier, you know, these sort of earlier waves, we're talking the 1880s, work the season because sugar is one of those crops that has a, a big surge in its demand for labor at harvest time. They'd harvest and then, you know, maybe do some labor and then head back and, and spend the summer uh, in, in Sicily. And, and then come back, you know, in the following year. So why was that more efficient than using freed blacks to work in the fields? Oh, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't. Um, you remember at this time, of course, you have the, what's known as the Thibodeau massacre. Um, you have a lot of labor unrest with free people of color <clears throat> after the Civil War because the Knights of Labor are, are organizing and there's a belief that you can hire Sicilians and they'll be more obedient. And I think this is true for a very short while. <clears throat> One thing you gotta understand is I think while cane cutting is a really important part of the lore of the Sicilian coming to America story here in Louisiana, it actually only lasts a very brief time because the Sicilians are the first to figure out that this is a bad idea. Uh, that they're never going to make any money. And, and so we, we start to see, um, and, and also like the Sicilians are not, being white, are not barred from buying land in, in a way that African-Americans face. And so we see Sicilians turning their savings into land ownership and ultimately truck farming um, if they stay in agriculture or moving to New Orleans and being involved in laboring, working on the docks, um, performing trades that they might have performed in Palermo, you know, famously like the Bracados. Uh, Angelo Bracado and his brother actually came to America, uh, you know, to cut cane. Actually, his father came to cut cane um, early in the 1870s, and he was a shoe maker, a cobbler and died in the yellow fever epidemic of 1874. And then, you know, the Bracados went back to Sicily. Well, the two sons came back to cut cane and then ultimately came back and opened their gelateria, which was, I believe, at the corner of St. Philip and Decatur where it first opened. 
Yeah. And Sicilians eat a lot of ice cream. I mean, it's a very hot climate out there. And on the beaches, over there, I mean, there's a lot of people sell ice cream. So there's a real culture there for that. Well, I eat a lot of ice cream, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, and I'm not Sicilian, but, but, but yeah, uh, I, I could see that. Also, you know, the ice, the, the, the idea of gelato and, 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 of course, lemon ice. Nothing more Sicilian than lemon ice. The, um, and the lemons that Sicilians grow, too. They grow these basketball-sized lemons uh, over there. So I could see they brought a lot of uh, technology, I guess, to this area in terms of, of, of crop production. Well, Sicily... I mean, the lemon is the the reason why Sicilians are where they are in the Americas, because the, Sicily was the world's leading producer of lemons until California overtook it in 1936. And so if you go back, you wind back to the early 19th century in the age of sale, the Sicily lemon was like the perfect crop because you pick it green and it'd be hard as a baseball and then you'd, you'd wrap it up and it actually would ripen on a sea voyage. And it could take a hundred days to sail from Palermo to New Orleans in, in a sailing vessel, but that was okay because the lemons would keep. And so in the age of steam, there are all kinds of produce and meat and frozen meat and stuff like that being shipped. But lemons are, are unique in that they're one of those perishables that actually can withstand a sailing voyage and so Sicily, this is really where the first fortunes are made in Sicily. In fact, you know, what organized crime develops in Sicily because it targets these wealthy citrus growers in the 1840s and 1850s because that's where the money is. And as agriculturalists, their 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 fields are vulnerable to extortion. Um, and so, um, you know, the Sicily lemon is really literally the gold standard of of trade and. Um, is very much responsible for the migration of Sicilians everywhere because this merchant class goes out and colonizes in New York and in Boston and in Philadelphia and places like New Orleans or Buenos Aires or elsewhere. Yeah. This is an aside, and, and I, don't know, I might be wrong about this, but it seems to me that the Sicilian lemon got a whole new wave of popularity in the last few decades with the emergence of limoncello. Um, Limoncello was around, what, what was the movie um, where they give the recipe, it's the love story, and uh, and they give the recipe for making Limoncello? I have had Maria Compagno's Limoncello before, let me tell you. Um, she gave it to me when I did an oral history interview with her, and it was during Lent, and I'd given up alcohol for Lent. And then on Easter, I decided why it would be quite refreshing to have some of this limoncello that's been sitting in my freezer for weeks. And I had several. And I do recall spending the rest of my Easter in a, in a reclining position. <laughs> a good limoncello when it's really nice and chilled. I married oh. myself, I can't think of the name of the movie. Uh, it's this woman and she had this husband left her and she goes to Italy and, they, and uh, she meets this journalist and in the end, they wind up getting together, but there's- this I, I know the movie, yes, it's yeah. very cute. Yeah, it's this famous scene where the guy's showing them how to make limoncello, and then after, after that, I uh, really saw him. Uh, when you're talking about the uh, Sicilian immigrants, when they were starting to, uh, I guess it happened, they came here with the intention of going back to Sicily, but a lot of them just decided they wanted to stay here or move their families here. 
I think they found that they could thrive here in ways that were not possible in Sicily. Um, re remember, you know, the Sicily was really run by criminals. Um, taxation was very high. It was very, very difficult to buy land. You know, unless you were of the landed class, it's not like you could go out and purchase a farm. And I think Sicilians, once they realized that this was a place you could have something, you could have land, they were mostly agricultural people and you could acquire property. Uh, Sicilians become very good capitalists. You know, they, they save, they, they buy lots of real estate. In fact, you know, you can look at the property tax rolls of the French Quarter and it's sort of masked because they're all LLCs and holding companies. But a lot of that real estate is still actually held by uh, the descendants of these Sicilian families still today. Um, you know, they buy up the French Quarter predominantly below Bourbon Street, uh, downriver of the of Jackson Square is, I would wager, 75% owned by families of Sicilian descent. Oh, yeah, if I could just inject something. I remember as a kid that uh, my family was from central Louisiana, and they were French, uh, but they were poor. And, and a lot of people migrated to New Orleans looking for jobs. And I remember as a kid going to see my relatives who migrated, and they lived in the French Quarter. And the French Quarter was run down. I mean, I mean back then, but they oh, ran yeah. from Italians, right? I mean, I mean, the Italians were really like the the social and political sense center of their existence. In the church, Saint Mary's Italian was was you know was the real cultural center. Very much so. Yeah, there's a great line. I have an interview with Danny Barker that he he talks about growing up on Royal Street, and all his kid friends were Sicilians, and this would have been you know in the 20s or, or whatever. And they, he, he joked, as only Danny Barker can, that they called him a smoked Italian. In <laughs> yeah. the St. Mary's Italian, the church uh, had a gym across the street. Now I think it's some kind of condo housing or something. It was the St. Mary's Italian gym. We see a boxing. Oh, yeah. so a lot of these kids grew up in the box. And so you had a lot of Italian boxers that came out of the, uh, um, uh, out of the neighborhood. Yeah, we, we, I learned, you know, I had people tell me about Father Vitarami who was there and who was like a boxing coach and kind of like a young, you know, we don't have as many young kind of athletic priests today and, and uh, occasionally you have a young priest, but back then, you know, you, you had uh, these young parish priests very much involved in this, like the CYO boxing and yeah. Uh, yeah, part of the culture here. I remember there was a priest called Father Liberto. I don't think he was a boxer, but he was sort of like the boss of the uh, uh, of the neighborhood. Um, the other thing I remember you know, is St. Joseph's Altars. Uh, and, you know, just about everybody lived in half of a shotgun house. And so you could walk by and you could see the, the altars and somebody's half of a shotgun house. And that was a, and I know they still exist, but... Uh, I think we're losing the domestic ones. I mean, the ones in people's houses, they're more of the institutional ones, but it was a great, it was a great tradition. Yeah, and, and it's, it's fun to look at like the old newspaper um, ads where somebody would run a classified and saying, you know, so-and-so will be having a St. Joseph altar at this address on Royal Street or whatever. And, you know, people would just gone you know they'd get their paper and maybe maybe not even necessarily neighborhood people but people who are going from altar to altar yeah i agree it, it is i think it's a it's a tradition that like a lot of 
New Orleans traditions that once people rediscover them, want to participate in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of churches are doing them, but I think um, when people learn that they can do an altar in their home, I I talk to people and I'm talking people, you know, like under 40, they, they're like, you know, that's cool. I kind of like to do that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think there's something in the, the St. Joseph's altar that can be about sustaining that sort of unique New Orleans culture. Yeah. Well, I have a, a hunch. Let me bounce it off of, off of you and you can tell me I'm wrong and I'll forget about it. Okay. But here's what it is, is that um, I've been lucky enough to go to Sissy a couple of times and I ask people about St. Joseph's Day altars and it's like blank stares in Sicily. They don't right. know about it. They barely know anything about St. Joseph, all right? I mean, they'll know about their town saint, St. Cecilia and St. Lucy and all that. Um, but it doesn't seem there's hardly any interest or even realization of it in Sicily. And from what I've told, I mean, I know there are some places on the East Coast that do it, but I kind of think New Orleans has become the global epicenter to St. Joseph's altar, that this is where it survives. And when you hear about people in California who have a St. Joseph's altar, chances are that person had some roots that went through New Orleans uh, to bring it there. I, I think that's true. I think St. Joseph comes to New Orleans, I think, you know, definitely celebrated in Sicily. It becomes a localized thing. You know, I mean, one, one of the things that I think is a lot of people don't really appreciate about Sicilian migration to New Orleans is that it's New Orleans where they become Sicilian because they were in Sicily and they were from Terramina or they were from Castelvetrano or Puglia. And they, you know, they saw themselves as being of that community, probably had never traveled anywhere else in Sicily. It was a mountainous country, not a real great transportation network. And so, you know, they would come and they'd get to the French market and you'd have all these people that this would be the first time they ever met each other. And the only kind of defining characteristic that united all of them was that they were from this island. They were all Sicilian. So they were no longer simply, you know, you know, from Messina or from, uh, you know, that is Monreale or somewhere like that. Yeah. That is really fascinating because I never thought about it in the context of Sicilians, but I've heard a similar theory about the Irish in New York. Uh, that it was in New York that the Irish discovered their Irishness because when they came over from the old country, they were from County Cork or County Gaul, whatever county they were from, and never really thought within the national identity. And all of a sudden in New York, they're they're Irish. Yeah, and I think the Irish have a similar history of, you know, oppression from the outside, things that that work against national identity in a way that, um, you know, I mean, the Germans to a lesser extent, the Germans have this more, uh, you know, Germanic unity uh, of language and, you know, sort of Germanic culture, although there is even divides in that, particularly between Catholic, you know, Germans and Prussians. And, and, you know, there is that divide, but certainly I, I would agree. And, and also Ireland is one of those places where they wouldn't have traveled, you know, until they made this enormous journey across the ocean, uh, which had to have been a tremendous thing to do. 
my grandparents were immigrants and they did this, you know, and I always wonder at that, uh, leaving everything behind. And also sometimes it's, it's the immigrants, once they move to a new world, they have brought the culture with them and that the culture is preserved in the new world, whereas forgotten in the old world. Um, <laughs> yeah, what, one of the things I found really interesting in interviewing people and actually also, you know, one of the, the resources I used were the um, really rich collection of um, interviews that Joe Maselli did in the 1970s and early 80s, you know, what was really cool about Joe was, you know, a lot of people intend to go do an amateur oral history. They'll record five or six and they'll get busy and they'll quit doing it. You know, there's no systematic approach. But what Joe did was he kept doing it. He made over a hundred of these oral histories. And the other thing is everybody liked him. So they were willing to talk to him. And he caught the Italian immigrant generation at a time when he his impetus was he knew they were dying off and so he knew that there was a limited time and he you know a lot of the interviews they're they're sort of you know hey you know can you tell me what a price of bre bread was at 1936 well i mean i can look that up I, that's not what i need an oral history interview but there are moments of solid gold in those interviews and um one of the things that really emerged that i thought was interesting was that the immigrant generation was really happy to become here. They were very proud to become Americans and they could not understand why their children wanted to go back and visit Sicily. There was nothing that they left behind in Sicily that they wanted to see. And I think their children do a really, I think the children of the Sicilian immigrants are distinctive in that, you know how that first American born generation becomes very, Americanized, you know, and they don't learn the language. And I think the children of the Sicilian immigrants were different in that their parents left Sicily and never looked back. And, and in that, so instead of like the immigrant generation being really pursuing the preservation of the culture, ironically, it was their kids who did it. And the kids, while their parents were still alive, you know, really wanted to know about Sicily. But, but you got to understand for the immigrant generation, Sicily was not a place that necessarily was home to fond memories because life was so difficult. Their fond memories were the day they became American, you know, the day they bought their first home, uh, you know, their, their, their wedding here in, in New Orleans. And so the kids grew up with this kind of, you know, almost like World War II vets who saw a lot of combat and would never talk about their combat experiences and the kids kind of idolizing this sort of version of it. It's the kids that go back. And it, it always, I don't know how many interviews Joe did where they, they were like, you know, these old, old folks who, they were, they were sort of dumbfounded why their kids would ever want to do that, you know? Um, and so I, I think it is that, that first American generation that really, they have the altars. They, they preserve the culture, they buy the Louis Prima albums, they really embrace it, ironically, in the way that their parents never did, you know? Yeah. Also, the kids don't have to ride in the boat for 28 days either. Right, <laughs> right. or, you know, work uh, and, you know, survive off of fapa beans, you know, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember doing an interview with, um, uh, with Nick Logides, and he's, he was talking about Sfingioni, you know, the Sicilian pizza, 
that's made here. And he, he was talking about, you know, mozzarella cheese and how, you know, there's mozzarella cheese on, they'll put it on pizza. And he said, he says, there's, there's no mozzarella cheese on Spinjoni. He says, you know, you think some poor person sitting around in Sicily's got mozzarella cheese, you know, it's breadcrumbs. And, I, and I, it was really, I think, a very good illustration of, you know, the wealth, the juxtaposition of the poverty of Sicily and the comparative wealth that Sicilians found when they came here and they liked it. Yeah. Um, and over time, there were some communities that became identified as Sicilian communities or Italian communities, like 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 Kinner, for example, had a big a big oh, yeah. population. Uh, what are some of the towns like Independence? Is a, 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 well, I think Kenner in particularly, one of the things I think people forget because the landscape is so completely erased, but, you know, in 1925, Southern California and Central Florida didn't exist as we know them to exist today as these great hubs of produce production. So Kenner was functioned like, you know, those fields around Orlando that aren't subdivisions now, but are still growing things like lettuce and strawberries. That was, you know, the you know the North Shore, Independence, Tangipahoa Parish, Kenner, and it would all go up to Illinois Central. You know, the Illinois Central would stop in in Harahan and Kenner and all those places. Kennerville, it was called, load up on produce and head head north to Chicago. You know, the 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 Louisiana strawberries were certainly sold in New Orleans, but it, Chicago was their primary market. You know. Um, and and, and I, as as I as I joke that that the Louisiana strawberry crop, people talk about it being in decline, but it, it's been in decline since about 1930. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, so, when, so that, and so that was a bit Italians who started the strawberry crop. Yeah, it, ironically, the 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 um, the person who really organized the Tangipahoa strawberry growers was a Chicagoan by the name of Joe DeBuono. And he came down, he was, of course, you know, he was Sicilian. And there are these very long distance American connections. We see it with the Progressive Company, you know, with the Udo Terramina uh, family where, you know, they'll have a cannery in New Jersey and they have a cannery in, in uh, Texas and, and, uh, and Donna, Texas and in Mississippi. And, um, and then in California, ultimately, you know, it was in, within the family, the Sicilians work together. So, you know, this guy comes down from Chicago and, and recognizes his countrymen in this place and organizes the 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 Tangipahoa to Chicago strawberry trade, developed um, agricultural standards, you know, making sure that the berries that arrived were of the premium quality that they needed to be to command the prices uh, that farmers wanted to receive. Um, so Wouldn't yeah. it be true that the ultimate New Orleans inspired Italian dish, which you wouldn't find in Italy, would be the muffaletta. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's it's definitely very symbolic of a lot of things that collide and, you know, the, the Decatur Street, which, you know, one of the things I love about Central Grocery, and yes, I love a, a muffaletta, but it's actually what people, are looking at as an artifact of what was very common along Decatur Street. You know, the French market isn't what it was, but 
that whole riverfront was a wholesale food distribution hub in places like central, you know, they talk about, you know, people, old timers are going there and say, oh yeah, my dad would be haggling over buying a case of olive oil or a whole wheel of cheese. The muffaletta only became important when tourism became the number one thing. But, but you know, until about the 1970s, the muffaletta is this thing that local people buy. And, and it's, it's a product of, you know, there was no menu board as, as uh, Tommy Tusa said, you know, there was no menu board because this is the only thing they sold. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the only sandwich. And, you know, the fact that it gets its name from the bread you know, uh, there's a law passed in 1910 requiring bread to either be cased in a glass case or be wrapped in paper. And so that's, you know, ironically worrying about the cleanliness of Sicilians in the French Quarter. And so they they bake the muffaletta loaf and they stuff it in this bag and it says muffaletta on the side. And then when they make the sandwich, even today, right, they pull it out of the bag, they slice it open, make the sandwich, cut it, put it back in the bag. Well, that's what they were doing in the 50s. And people see somebody walking with a sandwich, there's muffaletta on the side. Mm -hmm. That's how we become known. So when they filmed King Creole there at the McDonough School, which is today the Homer Plessy um, Charter School, it was across the street from Montalbano's Grocery, which was one of the very famous places where you can get a muffaletta. And a lot of people attribute the muffaletta getting known outside of New Orleans from that moment when the film crew would queue up every day for lunch outside of Montalbano's eating muffaletta sandwiches. This was what, 1958, something like that. Um, but before the 70s- What film was that? Uh, King Creole with Elvis oh, Presley. Okay, yeah. yeah. And of course, it was a lot of it was filmed there. I think it was McDonough 18 or something like that. Uh, I could have the McDonough number wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, but, but, you know, it's the 70s where, you know, Central is putting out all this stuff. We invented the Muffaletta Santa. Well, I, you know, that's a very dubious claim. Um, and I think even Central acknowledges that today. But, um, you know, none of their ads from even the 40s mentioned the muffaletta. Mm-hmm. It's it's not, but it's definitely a local thing. And it's kind of making me hungry just to talk about it right now. I, I heard, and the real secret to the muffaletta is the olive salad. I mean, that's the really key thing. Oh yeah, olive yeah. salad is everything. But, uh, I heard, and it's possibly not true, that the muffaletta got its name at Central Grocery from a, uh, like I think it was a salesman that came by and his name was Muffaletta. Oh yeah, no, no, it's definitely the bread. Okay. Because it's a muffaletta loaf, which you can find in Sicily, um, even today. It's that brown seeded loaf with the sesame seeds. It's, and it's a very special bread. Um, you know, it's, it's a durable bread. That's why it'll hold up with all that olive salad in your refrigerator for a day or two. You know, everything in your fridge smells like olive salad, but <laughs> you smell like olive salad, but um, it's worth it. I want to talk a little bit about the, um music the um in the quarter there emerged these uh, you know italian musicians and there was there's a lot of mix maybe know more about this also with black musicians and somewhere from all of that jazz evolved and the first jazz record still was by nickel rocca and the original dixieland jazz band and the first song was uh livery stable blues and we just have a little sample of it 
So this was the first jazz record. And uh, from what I'm told that back then, they couldn't control recording uh, equipment very well. And so the music came out at the speed that they were able to record it. And back then, all their, all their music was fast. And so it was actually the recording that made uh, jazz faster than it was. But anyway, here you go, a little bit of Liberty Blues. <laughs> And uh, there's one part where they try to do some uh, animal sounds uh, in it. But wasn't there really th uh, sort of a, a merger of cultures between Blacks and Italians? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of different ways. Um, I do write about this a good bit. Um, not as much about La Rocca, but, but you, you got to understand it like the culture of jazz and, and it, its relationship with alcohol and food and, and dancing later on and so we think about where jazz is being produced and where is it being played it's being so on the low end it's being played in bars and sicilians own a lot of bars where jazz is being played and some of them are sicilians and it, there's a really great movie um uh, documentary i'm in it actually uh this uh sicilian documentary uh filmmaker by the name of michaela Cinque called Sicily Jazz, but jazz spelled with two S's. And he, he makes a really good argument about sort of the brass band tradition of Sicily and, you know, marching bands. And so like, if you went to Spanish Fort when it reopened in 1913, you could hear Tasso's military band. So there were these, you know, Italian brass bands playing traditional march, you know, music that you would hear. Imagine people with their straw boaters, you know, at picnics and things like that. So there's that, but then there's also definitely the, the particularly Afro-Creole musical tradition that runs very deep in New Orleans. And, you know, people like Kid Ory and, and uh, well, of course he's from St. James Parish, you know, Jelly Roe Morton, who like several other people claim to invent jazz. Um, there is definitely a fusion. There, there's another place that this occurs. So spaghetti restaurants start becoming popular in the teens, right? There's really no spaghetti being served in New Orleans before 1900, very little. But spaghetti becomes the hot new dish right at a time when jazz is becoming popular. So these spaghetti restaurants become white tablecloth establishments on Bourbon Street, kind of with the advent of prohibition. And we start seeing them hire jazz bands. Another place is, of course, Tranchina's restaurant at Spanish Fort, which hires Piron's orchestra. Of course, Armand Piron, one of the early um, jazz, really the first Afro-Creole jazz musician in New Orleans. He really never travels much out of New Orleans, didn't like it, didn't like to travel, you know. Um, but we have a lot of his early music from the 20s. He's the one who composed the uh, jazz standard, I wish you could shimmy like my, your sister Kate or whatever, you know, he wrote that and probably performed it for the first time at Spanish Fort at Tranchina's, which was a Sicilian run dance club, um, you know, restaurant with this 13 piece Afro-Creole orchestra. So there's a lot of collaboration. Uh, you know, you think about somebody like Louis Prima, 
who is very much growing up in a, a musical culture influenced by both Sicilians and by people of color. Yeah. You said the magic word, which is Louis Prima. Uh, I want to play a, a little bit of um, one of his songs, Angelina. Um, and <laughs> there's a couple of lines here. The first line, uh, just love, uh, uh, I get any pasta twice just because she is so nice. Angelina, the waitress at the pizzeria. And it's just a, it's a funny song and it's a, a bouncy kind of song. This is a whole different generation from uh, Liberty Stable Blues. Liberty Stable Blues was in 1917 and I think Angelina was in the 1940s. So there's more commercial success, but just, and Louis Prima was, uh, was born and raised in New Orleans, but this is just the beginning of Angelina. I eat Aunt the pasta twice just because she is so nice, Angelina. Angelina, which is at the pizzeria. I keep soup and minestrone just to be with her alone, Angelina. Angelina, which is at the pizzeria. I eat soup and minestrone just to be with her alone, Angelina. And the closing line is, is, is my favorite. And that is, I'll meet in matrimony the girl who serves Spumoni. And so, yes. uh, and so that was uh, one of uh, Louis, uh, Louis Prima's big hits. So just a, another generation of, uh, of the music. And, uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, another topic that, that we're really not complete if we don't um, talk about it. Okay, and uh, is it fair to say that, you know, it's been said that the mafia originated in New Orleans. Maybe that's true, maybe not, but at least it seems to be that the legend of the, of the mafia originated in New Orleans. What would be the accurate statement? I would say that's probably not true. So yes, the, what we would consider as organized crime. And I, so I, the, the M word, is, the mafia is, is something that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of careful about because it's, it's the definition of it is important, right? So I think there is a mafia figure who appears in New Orleans in the late 19th century, the Esposito, you know, the famous um, Sicilian mafia bandit, you know, so the mafia emerges as a force in Sicily in the 1850s. And remember you had at the time these fruit merchants who had come to New Orleans and they were very, very happy to be away from the mafia. They were very happy to have a police force that they could, you know, even though like a lot of urban police forces at the time had its share of corruption, was a police force that they could generally trust and they could acquire property and they wouldn't be extorted left and right. And so when Esposito shows up, right, this is how David Hennessy, young David Hennessy becomes famous. He, he captures Esposito. Um, Esposito shows up here and he starts, you know, the, the typical extortion racket. This is in the mid 1880s. And David Hennessy was the police chief. Yeah, David Hennessy is of course the police chief who's later killed. Um, supposedly by mafia people, although again, that it's, it's, it's a fine point of terms, you know? So 
David Esposito goes back to Sicily and Chains, and, and like nobody here is very sad about that. None of the Sicilians are actually rather happy that this guy is gone because he is a very disruptive force. The people who shoot Hennessy, um, it's more of a, is it mafia? You know, not in the true sense. It's, it's more like, is it gang warfare? Yes. So you have these two opposing gangs, if you will, on the waterfront who are both happen to be Sicilians and Hennessy gets involved. Hennessy, of course, himself has got his hands on a lot of a lot of things. He's not quite the saint that the press would have you believe. And he basically kind of gets himself involved too much. And the other side decides that perhaps it is time to clip the chief. And I do do Sicilians kill Hennessy? Almost certainly. You know, I don't think it was some convoluted conspiracy by the police to do it. Um, there's always something hinky. There's something hinky about the lynching of the Sicilians that takes place afterward, because some of those guys walk out of the Murray Street jail unharmed, right? Where others uh, do not. There's more about that than we know. Yeah, for those who missed that, is that yeah. some. Um, Local Sicilians who were suspect were rounded up by the police. Uh, there was a lot of passion in the community. There was a, an anti-Sicilian sentiment, and they were all acquitted, as they're called. And so right. people organized, and they rushed to jail. They got them, and this is one of the really disgraceful moments in New Orleans history. And uh, they lynched some of them. And it became an international incident, and ultimately, the United States government had to issue a, an apology to the government of. Um, of Italy, it was a um, it was a bad moment. I've read one theory that there was a lot of Italian gangs at the time, but of all the Italian gangs, the one that fit the best into headlines was mafia, right? And right. so, so the right. word mafia became kind of a, a collective term for the uh, the headline writers to use. I, th I think that's right. You know, and there, there were definitely homicides all through the early 20th century where they talk about another mafia shooting or something like that. And what it was is you had a lot of criminals. I mean, if you were a criminal, New Orleans was a great destination because remember, if you go to New York, you've got Ellis Island. So there's some sort of systematic weeding out of people with criminal records. Uh, but New Orleans, there was no immigrant processing facility. Basically, the ship would stand off, a boat would go out to it with four, doc four or five doctors on it, and a matter of hours, they would inspect everybody on the boat, which you can only imagine how close those inspections were. Uh, the cargo would be offloaded, it would get inspected, then the gangplank would go down and everybody on that boat would melt into the French Quarter right at the Governor Nichols Street Wharf. There was no processing, you know, that scene in The Godfather 2 where a young Vito Corleone is anxiously awaiting his fate as to whether he'll be sent back. Very few people are sent back from New Orleans unless they have very obvious physical ailments. And so um, New Orleans becomes a place that attracts, you know, like you say mafia, but like these are just hoodlums, you know. And so a lot of hoodlums get in, the, the you know, the Axeman murders, things like that, like the, um, the um, the shooting at the Beauregard Kais, the you know the Jacana House. This is done by 
not so much mafia, but like people who thought they could get away with the sort of extortion that they did in Sicily, they could get away with doing here and with mixed results. Yes, they do. Do people like this ultimately sort of coalesce, particularly in the years leading up to prohibition into a local organized crime syndicate? Absolutely. Do they have ties to the Sicilian mafia? Eventually. Um, what it is, is, is in one of the reasons you have the lynching is that there is this very kind of rampant ad hoc criminality among Sicilians of whom the Sicilians are the most concerned because they're very concerned about the reputation of their community, you know, particularly the merchants who had grown very wealthy, you know, importing fruit and then tropical fruit where they get even more wealthy. Um, so they are the most interested in clamping down on this sort of activity because it's hurting them. Mafia, titans of industry, of shipping, are not interested in having the mafia around. Um, but ultimately, of course, prohibition will allow for financial structures of a scale that allow the mafia to become very powerful. Okay. We're talking to you, uh, Justin Nystrom, who's a professor at history at Loyola University, uh, also director of the Center for the Study of uh, New Orleans, has a book out, Creole Italians, Sicilian Immigrants and the Shaping of the New Orleans Food Culture. Justin, there's two more things I want to do before we go away, if you don't mind. One is we do like a little thing here called <laughs> this or that. And for that, we call on our producer, Kelly. And this is like, you know, there's no science behind this. She'll mention two things and pick one that's your favorite. And you can't say both. You gotta, you gotta make a choice. There's no grades on this, okay, Kelly? <laughs> All right, there's no grades, but you might be judged for your response. Okay. <laughs> okay, the first one is pasta or risotto? Pasta. Agreed. Well, there's also more variety in pasta, so yeah, go ahead with that, yeah. Lemon ice or spumoni? Hmm. I think spumoni. I really like spumoni. I think I go along with that too, because spumoni has a little things in there. Right? It's, it's more of a, it's more of a, but it's not, but I tell you, man, because of lemon ice, it's hard to beat, you know? Oh, it's very good. I like the way spumoni's packed. I love the little wedges of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> okay. Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra? Oh, gosh. <laughs> You know, this is probably the unpopular choice, but I kind of like Dean Martin. That's my choice too. I go along with that too. I think, yeah. I think <laughs> Dean Martin sounds like he's having so much fun uh, when, you're singing, uh, when you're singing his songs. You know? Like I would rather hang out with Dean Martin. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, think about getting a drink with Dean Martin. <laughs> and anybody who would have been in Naples last night, their moon would have, the moon would have fit their eye like a big pizza box. <laughs> Did a huge move uh -huh. last night. So, okay. And then the last one, um, I added in there for fun, but Goodfellas or The Godfather? It's hard to go wrong with The Godfather. It's such a it's such a classic, and because of its cultural significance, The Godfather is a very influential movie in the way we think, for better or worse, about the Sicilian experience in America. Goodfellas yeah. is a great movie. Yeah, they're both really compelling, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, compelling movies. So, 
But before we go, just tell us a little bit uh, uh, more about your uh, your Creole Italian book. What did you What did you discover from doing this? Um, the imprint of Sicilians, which when I went into this thinking, you know, about that sort of 1880s period and cane cutting, which was sort of the narrative, um, kind of discovering the whole lemon, the sort of citrus trade as a driver of, of migration and kind of the earlier, wealthier cause and effect of the Sicilian merchants was revealing to me also kind of realizing that spaghetti wasn't like what we think of as a, a American Italian food really wasn't popular until the 20th century. You know, we, we, we kind of like, as Americans have this very skewed idea of what Italian food is to begin with. And the, the, the food we eat here is American Italian food. You know, uh, were, they eating, were these were they eating spaghetti in, in Italy? Before the I mean, they eat pasta in parts of Italy, mm -hmm. um, but but the idea of a of a meatball of spaghetti and meatballs is a very, you know, um, you don't have meatballs unless you have inexpensive large quantities of meat available, and that is just not an Italian reality. Certainly not a Sicilian reality. Um, any time up until modern times. And, um, and so, you know, it's really this very fusion cuisine that's created here um, uh, with the sort of availability. And also, you know, the, the whole gist of the idea of Creole Italian, I got, I got this, so what, what is Creole Italian? I asked all my interviewees and I got all, kind of, all kinds of answers, but to me, at the end of the day, it's about the place and, and about, you know, cause like seafood is important in Italian cooking, but the way um, we have the very, if you will, ter terroir of seafood, but then the very Italian notion of pasta, like that's a very staple of New Orleans cooking, a seafood pasta of some kind um, to me is one of those quintessential things or Italian dishes, but Italian dishes that have bell peppers and celery in them. Um, you know, the, what they refer to in New Orleans is red gravy, right? Red gravy, right? Well, I got the red gravy, uh, versus red sauce, and of course, I get people very would get very upset when I would say, Who cares? Um, but what I found was is that whether you called it red gravy or red sauce, and I'm, I'm sure people listening to this will be, tell me I'm totally wrong about this, but I, I stand by it depended entirely just on what your grandmother called it. It had nothing to do with the recipe. Now, you know, like I'm good friends with Mary Sonier, the, they have Gabrielle. And, you know, she said, well, to me always gravy was you always have a little meat gravy in it. Like, and I, I think they're like really actually they're, I think they're valid culinary explanations, but they're not consistent, you know. Um, a lot of it just had, and this is true, like Chicago Italians or, or New Jersey Italians, you know, you either grew up in a red sauce or red gravy family, and it had no bearing on what you were actually eating. It was just what your family had called it for several generations, you know. Well, I don't even think it's really a gravy. I mean, isn't the gravy for like the uh, the juice and the things that comes from? A yeah, or a, like a like there's a roux, there's a thickener or yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, I do know people who actually thicken their red sauce. So I suppose that could be a gravy or they like, like Mary said, you know, put in a, 
a little bit of a beef juice or something at beef gravy or stock in it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, uh, I call it red sauce myself because like to my mind, that's what it is. But I think it's a more accurate term. I think I would use that, but, um, but I know that's one company that does commercials and they, they sell jars of red gravy. Uh, because we mentioned uh, ricottas, I just want to follow up on that because uh, the, uh, I doubt if there is a, uh, a bakery in Sicily that does things better than ricottas does. I mean, ricottas is better, yeah. really, really good. There especially, are, I, especially the cannoli. Yeah, my favorite uh, Ricardo's memory is, of course, you know, I, I got to be in the course of writing this book, pretty good friends with Joe Segreto, who had eleven seventy nine, and I would, I, I seemed like I always would run into him at Ricardo's. He loved going to Ricardo's, and of course, Joe, he'd be dressed, you know, immaculately in Ricardo's, and. And I remember him one day and he had that gravelly old voice. He'd be like, this is real Sicilian right here, you know? And he knew, he was so knowledgeable about Sicilian food in general. Um, but yeah, and he, he always told me his favorite thing was the Turrancino, which was their oldest, mm. which was the oldest thing they served. Mm. You know, a long time ago, I interviewed, um, Angelo Bracara, not the original Angelo, but his his son. Sure. Who, had, who was an elderly man at that time. And uh, and he told me, of course, they all lived in the quarter. And um, nearby lived this guy, Diamond Jim Moran. I guess sure. you heard about him, okay. And um, he says every morning, Diamond Jim he had two sons, and he sent his two sons to Bricada's. Bricada's was in the quarter. He had a big pitcher of lemon ice and a loaf of Italian bread. That's right. And that would be their breakfast. Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> um, lemon ice on Italian bread. And, you know, I think, well, that sounds pretty disgusting. But, you know, I, I kind of try, I bought some Italian bread, and it's like, it's not too far away from having like a, a jam or a jelly on it. Uh, or something. I mean, you know, something cold and fruity. Yeah, that that was actually more common than I, I realized. And what it was is there would be the United Bakery bread in particular, the the twist bread, which was made. Um, it was very tight, and it was almost like had like a almost cracker like, and so that's the bread they're talking about. Or there was a bakery on Decatur Street called Lombardo's Bakery, which had the the takeout window was actually still there. Uh, it's in like the 1300 block of Decatur. And there was a there was a bakery at that time. There would have been a bakery right there where they could have gotten hot, hot bread, you know, every morning, which had to have been nice, you know. Yeah. By the way, with Diamond Jim, there was a, a legend about him. He was a big man and, uh, and he wore diamonds. He wore diamond tie pin and supposedly had a diamond on his zipper and I don't know diamond on his braces but but he had this restaurant a lot of Louisiana and the legend was that from time to time he put a diamond in the meatball right right so someone could go there and get a diamond in the meatball and I remember the little kid my parents took me at one time and of course I was convinced there'd be a diamond in a meatball like I wasn't exactly Diamond Jim's market what he's looking for you know if he's trying to impress someone so there was no diamond uh, <laughs> Uh, in my beatball, but I, I don't know. Maybe. But, but he was a bricado, I think. I think if, um, he, he, he was a, a bricado. There were many bricados, but he was not a direct 
relative of the ice cream people. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, thank you very much. This has been uh, delightful. Uh, I've I've really learned a lot uh, from all this. Uh, the area that you're looking at is a very important area. So so keep on keep on exploring. Right. Okay. Well, and at some point, I'd like to get back to you and talk about some of your other topics, especially like the Civil War era, that, that sort of thing. Great. Great. Sounds good. All right. Take care. And thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Kelly. We'll be back next time. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.